Hey everyone, you're listening to Obscuristan, the podcast where we talk about how fucking weird Eurasia is. And more importantly, how it got that way. We're your hosts. I'm Anna. I'm Karina. And without further ado, let's go to Obscuristan. Thank you for joining us for the very first episode of Obscuristan. Um, this podcast has been a long time in the works. And, yeah. you know, we'd been intending to kick things off with a much funnier, a lot more lighthearted story from the depths of Eurasia. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the war in Armenia, its effects on us, our friends, our families, and our country has left us with little choice but to start here. Which honestly, and I don't know if you agree with this, Gadina, is like as fucking Eurasian as it could possibly get. <laughs> it could only it could only be this way. Um, okay, so do we want to talk about what? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as Anna kind of um, outlined, there the, the war affected us on such a fundamental level that it was just something that we couldn't not kind of address, right. The it's effect on us and kind of just talking about what happened. Um, and you know, what happened as many of you might already know on September 13th, just a couple of weeks ago, Azerbaijan launched a large scale attack along the entire Eastern border of Armenia penetrating into Armenian ter- territory. They used artillery mortar attack drones targeting Armenian military positions and civilian areas, including the towns of Vartanis, Jermuk, Sisyon, Goris, Gapan, and the Gelakunik and Sunik regions of the Republic of Armenia. So since then, um, this is according to EVN report, the attack has left 207 Armenian soldiers dead or missing. There are 293 people injured. Three civilians are dead and as always, documented cases of horrific war, war crimes committed by Azerbaijani troops, and there are 20 prisoners of war who um, were in Azerbaijani captivity, and 17 of them were recently returned. Yes, um, the Azerbaijani government has confirmed 75 deaths on their side. The real numbers are certainly much higher. The reason this is such a paradigm shift in the history of this conflict is that it's the first incursion into the sovereign territory of Armenia, as opposed to um, a conflict over the Republic of Artsakh, or as some of you may have heard of it, Nagorno-Karabakh. And I just want to clarify, um, during the 2020 Artsakh War, there were attacks on the sovereign territory of Armenia, in particular, Gelarkunik region, and I think elsewhere. Um, and then also in 2021, there was an incursion of Azerbaijani soldiers into Armenian territory. So this is just um, the latest round. But um, what Anna is emphasizing is the fact that it is actually unprecedented, um, this, this level of kind of aggression um, attacking the whole eastern border of Armenia. Yeah, so this attack very clearly took months to plan based on the type of um, incursion that it is, um, at, at, at the least. And so it was clearly a major military incursion that was planned into the sovereign territory of Armenia. Um, And that is a departure from the history of this conflict. And the reason this is important is not because it diminishes 
um, the rights of the people of Artsakh to self-determination, nor does it sort of negate the argument that they've been making for, you know, almost a century at this point, um, that they would like to live freely and independently. Um, but what it does do is it sort of belies and it reveals um, the true purpose of Azerbaijan's attacks and the true purpose of, you know, this extended war and conflict. Because for years, the Azerbaijani state has insisted that this war is about one thing and one thing only, Azerbaijan's right to territorial integrity and not about, you know, their genocidal intent to wipe out Armenians or erase the existence of Armenians on land that they've lived on for thousands of years. Um, their invasion of Armenia proper and cl and claims to undisputed territory, according to international law or any other international actors, reveal uh, the absolute asshattery of believing the Azerbaijani state's propaganda on this and, in fact, should only strengthen the people of Artsakh's claims to self-determination um, because it reveals the actual intent of this war. And it's an intent that I think Armenians have been talking about a lot, especially online, but um, kind of, you know, to be blunt, no one's been listening. <laughs> so now that the videos of, um, you know, in particular, the mutilation of um, female service members, which we'll get into in a bit, and also videos of execution of Armenian POWs has suddenly caught the world's attention, um, as it rightly should. But my question was kind of, you know, anyone tweeted about it, like, where the fuck was everyone 20? Uh, in 2020, when um, we were being subjected to a steady stream of, of um, this kind of um, behavior from Azerbaijani soldiers. Um, and I wanted to say also the choice to focus on this more recent history as opposed to addressing what Anna briefly described as a complicated history is because this conflict is long and it's deliberately muddled by propaganda. Um, and that's why we're choosing to focus on the struggle, the Armenian struggle for liberty at the heart of it. So we want to take a step back because we actually know that this isn't super clear. If you have heard anything about this conflict, you've probably heard about it as being a dispute over territory that you might know as Nagorno-Karabakh, but its residents call the Republic of Artsakh. Um, while that is true, Armenians have been insisting for decades at this point that this is not simply a conflict over disputed territory, but rather a fight for an existential, an existential fight for the existence of Armenians on this land itself. Um, and Azerbaijan's recent attacks on Armenia proper lay bare that reality. They basically are evidence that Armenians were right. Uh, for many years, people and experts in the region have insisted that, you know, this is a conflict over the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. Um, while Armenians have insisted that one day Azerbaijan will attack Armenia itself. And... Lo and behold, that that day has come. That day is here. That day is now. And and the the legacy of suppress suppression of Armenian resistance against Azerbaijani rule is also seen in the attacks from mid September. Um, yes, as is the longstanding policy of state sponsored Armenophobia and xenophobia within Azerbaijan. Um, that is reflected in school books, to the media, to rhetoric from officials. Um, and just to kind of, you know, remind listeners if they know already and if they don't, um, to let them know <laughs> that during the 2020 Artsakh War, um, Azerbaijani President Aliyev said, we will chase them out like dogs, referring to Armenians of, of Artsakh. Yeah, there's a long history of 
statements um, from Azerbaijani officials uh, basically saying what their intention is um, during, you know, the victory parades after the um, initial war in 2020 or the initial like re-outbreak of war in 2020 that Karina just mentioned. Um, during Azerbaijan's victory parades or victory celebrations, uh, they invoke the name of Talat Pasha, who is the orchestrator of, you know, the Armenian genocide in 1915. Um, and they, you know, there was a sort of open celebration of the longstanding project to destroy Armenians. And I, for our listeners, this is why whenever you hear Armenians talk about this or really anybody talk about this, it feels like they're suddenly going back 100 years, 200 years and, you know, invoking all these things that seem like they are just absolutely irrelevant or... Um, really esoteric and the reason is because this is a very long project and so you end up sort of having to go into this kind of absurd history uh because it's invoked by the people trying to kill you and it, and arguably the project never ended it just becomes kind of activated and then reactivated there's like active phases of genocide yeah and the the lack of um media attention on it internationally sort of makes it seem as though this sort of erupts every now and every now and again and suddenly you know Armenians are yelling about genocide again when in reality if you're looking at it you know from the perspective of being in the region itself this never this conflict was never frozen it never ended um and you know the policy of genocide against Armenians also never ended um that policy has continued and you as Armenians you experience that consistently um, but if you're looking from the outside in, it just feels like every now and then, you know, suddenly something happens and Armenians are yelling about genocide again, um, which is a sort of like, it's a bizarre space to exist in, you know? Anna, at some point, do we talk about the fact that you and I are both Armenian? Oh, why don't we talk about that now? Why don't we just talk about that? Okay. So dear listeners, this podcast is about Eurasia writ large, right? So broadly speaking, Eurasia and, you know... Um, we're interested in it. We have, you know, backgrounds in it, whether it's familial or academic or both. Um, but Anna and I are both Armenian. We're both ethnic Armenian. We have different family backgrounds. Um, Very different Armenian. family backgrounds. Yeah. Um, Anna lives in the United States. I um, live in Armenia. I grew up in California, but I spent the majority of my adult life in the UK. Um, but I live in Armenia now and I have since 2015 on and off. Um, for a couple of years, and then 2018, I, I more or less moved here permanently. Um, so this war affects us uh, on a personal level. Um, I used to teach at the American University of Armenia, and one of my former students was killed in the 2020 Artsakh War. I know other people who um, were killed. We also were very aware that in identifying ourselves as Armenian women and as Armenian as Armenians broadly, that also means that our opinions and our commentary on this conflict can be taken less seriously um, because there's an automatic bias associated with it. Um, and one, fuck that bullshit. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely fuck that. And, I, and I'll go into why also. But also, um, we never wanted this to be an Armenian podcast. We don't want this to be about Armenia from an Armenian perspective necessarily. We want this to be about the region from a decolonial perspective. And by decolonial, I don't mean like the bullshit kind of fluffy shit it's become now, but like really decentering Russia yes. and and giving uh, a, a more prominent platform to more marginalized and peripheral, quote unquote, peripheral voices. Um, and just to kind of point out the, the kind of inherent um, 
problems with using words like peripheral, which is like so, you know, as an academic, it's actually hard for me to kind of um, expunge that kind of vocabulary yeah. from from my brain. But um, fuck that also, because I've seen so much fucking commentary on Twitter around the 2020 war um, that was just flat out wrong. And this is coming from people, analysts who make a career looking at the region and we're just getting it wrong. And it was interesting that myself and some other peers and colleagues of mine who are also ethnic Armenian, but who also have PhDs, degrees, expertise in the region yes, and on the subject matter were completely kind of shut down or our voices were relegated to some kind of um, second tier uh, authority just because we are Armenian. So the, the implication being because we're ethnic and sort of implicated in the conflict in a more direct way we're not capable of rationally analyzing the conflict and therefore these sort of quote-unquote unbiased outside voices were much better placed to kind of give insights to the rest of the world and in doing so they talked over us um and from a position a comfortable position in the west where their lives are actually not in danger and i know Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with that um dynamic when it comes to Ukraine, because, you know, people were doing the same thing to Ukrainian voices during um, the ongoing conflict. Um, And it's just something that, you know, I've personally just chosen to, like, I don't give a shit what they say. I will still point it out, right? Facts speak for themselves. And also objectivity is bullshit. I think we have sort of a firm belief that there is no objectivity in this world. Um, People come with backgrounds and experiences and biases, um, and we prefer to lay ours, you know, bare for you to examine and think about yourselves. Um, But we should mention that if you've been following this conflict at all, like even a little bit, even if you've just read a single article on it, you might notice that it's hard to figure out what the fuck is going on. What's what? Um, Who's who? Yeah, like what, like what actually happened? Um, and there's a reason for that. And I want to point out that so many of the leading quote-unquote experts on this conflict or the leading voices that are heard on this conflict have been fucking wrong all of the time. And the first evidence of that is, number one, this insistence that this conflict is only about disputed territory or territorial integrity or Azerbaijan's conception of international law, which is also not, you know, great. But... um. It's not about that. And Armenians have been insisting, you know, personally as as advocates and also just as, you know, legal analysts and um, just analysts of the region in general have been insisting for years it's not about that. And then, you know, the the conflict enters the sovereign territory of Armenia sort of explosively and everybody, you know, there's like a lot of um, sort of jaw dropped, well, you know, so unfortunate. This is so terrible. But there's a reason for that. The information space around this conflict is deliberately muddled because the Azerbaijani state has a pretty robust propaganda machine. Um, it, it's it's incredibly similar to Russia's propaganda machine, if you've become at all familiar with that. But it's robust and it's active and um, it's deliberately intended to muddy the waters of the conversation of this conflict to make it uh, to make you turn away because If you don't know what's going on, if you really can't tell who are the actors, what actually happened uh, day to day or even just, you know, the the broad strokes, um, you're going to perceive two small nations, you know, small and significant countries squabbling over something, Um, especially, you know, if you're on social media, on Twitter or, um, 
know, even in articles, like I wrote an article a little while back and uh, I, I, I'm, you know, within, I think, a week, uh, there was a rebuttal written to that article in the same publication by a uh, the head of an Azerbaijani, like, state-sponsored think tank. Amazing. I just want to be clear, like... I think it was a good article. I personally do not rise to the level of having the head of a think tank rebut the things I write. But that's how that's, that's how sort of level, robust that machine that's is. Right. And and um, aggressive and proactive as well. And I think another another reason the information space suffers from any kind of clarity is Western analysts and observers propensity for both siding and equalizing and balancing the, the, the conflict, right? So um, just fucking piss poor reporting, my God, really bad reporting, really bad analysis. And I just want to personally call out Thomas DeWall, who's broadly considered like the foremost expert on the conflict, by virtue of his literally being the first person to write about the conflict in English. The guy's a journalist. Okay, and in his Twitter bio, I think it says, and he might have taken it down. He took it down and I think it went back up, but he calls himself a scholar. He just has a bachelor's degree. He wrote a book, which I'm not going to name because it doesn't deserve any fucking attention because it's a shit book um, and has been kind of debunked for distortions of um, chronology and um, basic facts and sources. I mean, I know that, you know, when I worked in interna- uh, when I worked in the international relations space, um, when people were like, I really want to get an understanding of what, you know, the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh is about, they read his book. They read his book. But um, I just want to give you an example. Um, in the first week of the war in 2020, this is on October 3rd, 2020, Tom DeWall tweeted an Al Jazeera piece on the war, on the Arsaf war. And as we all, you know, as you and I know, at least on um, Al Jazeera reporting on Armenia is very biased. Yeah, it's not great. It's kind of upsetting. <laughs> And so Tom Deval tweets this Al Jazeera article, and the headline is Ilham Aliyev, the Armenian government, quote, overestimated its global role. So it's just this kind of, you know, dictator Aliyev, like shitting on Armenians, kind of saying, haha, like you guys overplayed your hand, this is what you get, kind of um, article. And Tom Deval comments on this article, and this is what he says, quote, I'm reading his, his tweet right now, gives insights into what President Aliyev is thinking. At least he wants to talk about negotiations, although, of course, the Armenian side sees things totally differently. Ellipsis. Unbelievable. And I'm, I'm saying this from October 2022, after multiple incursions into Armenian territory, after Azerbaijani soldiers have executed Armenian civilians in Artsakh, including people repairing a water pipe, uh, a farmer in his tractor, and uh, a video that came out last week of Azerbaijani soldiers executing seven Armenian POWs that they just captured. Yeah, it was a sum- it was a summary execution. So, like, you tell me, you tell me what fucking negotiations Aliyev is talking about, like demanding a corridor, a sovereign, a, a ter- like a literal fucking corridor going through Armenia to connect Azerbaijan with its exclave, Nakhichevan, that it would have full sovereign control over. This is negotiation. I mean, this is like peace at the barrel of a gun, which is not peace, right? Mm -hmm. That's not equitable peace. I mean, this isn't just rhetoric. Tom Deval uh, is is a very influential person. Everyone reads his book. Um, He meets with EU officials to kind of um, brief them on the conflict. People listen to him. Policymakers listen to him. And he needs to be held accountable for this shit. Yeah, when um, 
when the war in Artsakh uh, broke out in 2020, the Council on Foreign Relations, um, which is, you know, they publish pretty like leading materials on um, international affairs and policymakers read them. Um, it, it might be like for many policymakers, their sort of first choice of where to go to read uh, about international relations, international affairs. And the I, I want to say the first, if not the only article that was published about this war um, by CFR was by Thomas Duvall. Um, and it's important to note that, you know, we're criticizing not only his bias, um, but also the fact that he's been so dead wrong so many times. Um, an example of that is his general insistence that like sovereign Armenia was not at risk or that this isn't that Azerbaijan's mission now has nothing to do with the erasure of Armenians or the sort of like intent to destroy Armenians and is predicated mostly, if not like only in the desire to protect their territorial integrity. Um, so, for example, in April of 2021, he tweeted, Armenians now feel threatened by Azerbaijan and Turkey. Uh, but 2021 is not 1921. International norms which worked against Armenians on Nagorno-Karabakh also protect the Republic of Armenia. Aliyev and Erdogan are 21st century autocrats. They are not Talat Pasha. Judge events now and then on their own merits. Okay. Judge events on the merits. I mean, if Tom DeWall literally looked around. Yeah. So there's this insistence that you know, the Republic of Armenia is safe. The Republic of Armenia is not at risk here that, you know, if only Armenians were to be reasonable on, you know, Artsakh, then this would all be over. Um, but we know that's not true. Uh, we see now, you know, attacks on the sovereign territory of the Republic of Armenia, you know, in combination with um, all of this like genocidal rhetoric. But the government of the Republic of Armenia right now is extremely weak. Um, and they've made, I mean, a series of muddled statements on, uh, being willing to sign away the territorial integrity of the Republic of Artsakh, which, you know, we on this podcast are firmly against. But the idea that this is like about the Republic of Artsakh um, is absurd at this point. There's another elephant in the room, I think, um, that these people are neglecting to address, which is that if, you know, as, as they are implying, they are foreign international law and kind of the recognition of the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan, that this would necessarily entail the full, complete ethnic cleansing of 100, around 120,000 Armenians who would not remain under Azerbaijani control because we've seen what happens to Armenians when they come into contact with Azerbaijani power. The Aliyev government has said multiple times and kind of insists over and over and over again um, that, quote, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh are our citizens, unquote. Um, that's something that they've repeated, you know, multiple times. Unfortunately, any Armenians who come into contact with the Azerbaijani state wind up uh, dead, tortured, or any of the things in between. And if he's such a scholar, Thomas DeWall, if he was, he was the scholar that he pretends to be, he would also understand that Aliyev has two t different types of communication. One is for an internal audience and one is for an external. And the language and rhetoric that he uses for international um, audiences is much more kind of... Um, lipstick on a pig kind of shit like <laughs> these are our citizens and they will have the same rights as Azerbaijani citizens do which is like not many yeah <laughs> okay yeah I mean yeah all of this is on the backdrop of the enormously um autocratic uh like regime in Azerbaijan internally as well right like this isn't this isn't a regime that has um 
a lot it's of... very nice to its own people so and yeah. you know and we know what happens to dissidents abroad there's um there's a, a well-known uh, Azerbaijani dissident named Mohamed Mirzali, who mm-hmm. uh, currently lives in France. And, I mean, government thugs have come around his residence several times. They've um, carried out a knife attack on him that almost killed him, um, other kind of death threats. So this is, this is how Azerbaijan deals with its own citizens. Yeah, um, Akram Ayeshli, who wrote about the Armenian genocide um, and sort of in an op- honest and open way, is an Azerbaijani author who is, you know, has sort of been under house arrest for many years at this point because of that. For, there was also the case of um, the leader of a different uh, ethnic minority in Azerbaijan. Um, his name was Fakhradin Abasov. He was a prominent Thalish activist. So the Thalish were another mm-hmm. ethnic minority in Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. And he died in prison during the Artsakh War in 2020. That's right. Um, which was such a, it was such a blip. I remember when that happened. And to me, that's like huge because he was a prominent Thalish activist. He was an agitator for Thalish rights in Azerbaijan. And during this, during, you know, a time when Azerbaijan is at war, he winds up dead in prison. I mean, like it really was such a, to me, an enormous thing, but it was a blip in the new, in like the news that was coming out about this conflict. Um, and that's irresponsible reporting. And we've seen a lot of that, unfortunately. And I think, um, to zoom out, the, the the bigger issue here really is in um, imperialism, and it is the tendency of, you know, Western press to view these conflicts as um, squabbles or insignificant, or there's this overarching sort of um, mentality that they are, like, ancient ethnic animosities that, uh, you know... Date- Which completely shuts everyone down, right? That's exactly when everyone's eyes gl- glaze over. Exactly. When mine would. I would, like, you know, I don't have time... Of course. ...to go into this and parse it. And, and I think the propensity for both sides of them is in part due to that. It's people kind of insecure in their knowledge of the conflict, so they don't feel like they can actually name the aggressor. Yeah. Which is very clear. And I think a lot of our, on a, like, you know feel free to kind of chime in if this is something that's familiar to you or not. But I mean, as a, as a PhD who has been working with um, journalists, Western journalists who've worked on the region, analysts who've worked on the region, um, institutions that work on the region, human rights institutions included, I was appalled by the, their silence and equivocations during the war. And I came to this point where I thought, you know, it's not like we were asking you to take our side. That's not what we were asking of you. Mm-hmm. We were asking that you name the aggressor because the, the both sides shit is not telling the truth. Yes. And it also um, we were asking for rigorous reporting, too, because part of the problem is that, you know, if you look at journalists and reporters who are consistently in the region, um, the the trend and the sort of wave of what they're reporting is very different than uh, what you get from The New York Times, for example, which has. Um, you know, someone stationed in Turkey, uh, and that's kind of like the reporter who is, or the the journalist Arlotta who's writing Gall about this. Carla Gall is her name, and if you wanna, if, you, if everyone wants to know a really shitty journalist from the New York Times, her name is Carlotta Gall. <laughs> She's Istanbul yeah. bureau chief. Yeah, and it's but it's it's the kind of thing where you get reporting that's parodying government propaganda, and it's interesting because I really would be upset if um, there's really the uh, uh, government government statements from any country at any time should be taken with a mountain of salt. Um, government statements from a government that has a propensity to jail journalists regularly, habitually murder them on occasion. 
um, probably should be taken with two mountains of salt. Um, and there is, uh, unfortunately, when you don't have rigorous reporting, when you aren't willing to put effort and money into into something like this, you're going to end up with uh, a reliance on what what the West perceives as like the most official sources. Um, but here's the thing, right? Um, a lot of that you could chalk up to reduced funding for foreign reporting, reduced funding for foreign bureaus and stuff like that. In, in this case, it's specifically with the New York Times, with Carlotta Gall, and with the escalation of September 13 and 14. The New York Times made so many egregious, basic, factual errors. Yes. And inc- I mean, the most incredible of which was just getting the geography wrong, right? This attack was on Armenia, and the reporting said it was around Nagorno-Karabakh, which yes. was like not true. And like... A ways away. It's just a. And it's just an assumption, right? Like it's like, oh, this conflict is about Nagorno-Karabakh, so the attack was they, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Like, <laughs> exactly, which shows you know how much they just could not give two fucks about what's happening. But also, there's a point where it's not you know an oversight anymore because they had ample correction. People corrected them. They had ample correction from the public telling them this is wrong, and I think it was like a week after that false reporting came out and they were amply corrected and they came out with the same thing again. It was like an update on the conflict and they got that information wrong still. The New York Times issued a correction um, that appeared in print on Friday, September 23rd. And it says, an article on Sunday about Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Armenia misidentified the location of the recent clashes between Armenia and Azerbaijan. While the exact location of the fighting remains unclear, it did not take place in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, I find this correction also a little bit astounding for many reasons, one of which is that they still call it a clash, uh, when by that point it was, you know, eminently clear where the aggression was coming from. Um, and two, they say that the exact locations of fighting remains unclear. It's like that famous proverb about reporting. You know, your job isn't to report that one side says it's raining and the other side says it's not. Your job is to look out the fucking window. I might have added the profanity. But from my perspective, they're just refusing to look out the fucking window. Uh, we, we can mention also, for example, the reporting on the conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, which um, maybe we'll go into in another episode. But Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's important to mention that for like Tajikistan attacked Kyrgyzstan. That's what happened. Uh, and the reporting made it seem like it's almost as if uh, bullets just start erupting like volcanoes. Yeah. Um, like they just kind of Natural come from the ground. <laughs> like daisies. Can't stop it. Can't stop, won't stop. Montem an Armenian revolutionary, who said that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, no matter what anyone might say, things don't just suddenly go go to hell in the handbasket out of nowhere. This is such a paraphrase. But he has a quote where he talks about this, where, like, things don't happen for no reason. Um, and we're, like, we're all adults and intelligent people who know that. And the people at the New York Times know that. But um, that's not how reporting on Eurasia broadly happens. And that's not how reporting on this conflict happens. It's, it's neglect of their role um, yes. as people who inform because they're neglecting the attribution of responsibility of attack, right? Yeah. Because in these cases, someone is doing the attacking and someone is doing the, the, the defending. And when you fail to kind of um, explicate that dynamic, you're not, you're not being neutral. You're not being balanced. In fact, you're kind of giving carte blanche to the aggressor. Yes. Um, and, and it affords them a level of impunity that allows them to continue doing this. And that's exactly what's happening. 
Uh, yeah, and, you know, we don't mean to beat a dead horse. Like, obviously, everyone has sort of heard this idea that, like, silence is siding with the aggressor, and it feels like a cliche. But in, in this instance, it's not just this idea of silence. It's also the, like, we're harping on it because we know how muddled the information space is, and we know how deliberately muddled the information sp- space is. And, you know, just like with the conflict in Ukraine, um, when you have sort of a, um, when you have an actor as heavily involved in propaganda um, and misinformation as the Azerbaijani government, like the Russian government, um, that kind of lack of rigorous reporting results in not only like siding with the aggressor sort of philosophically, but it literally results with an elevation of um, misinformation. Like it it elevates the misinformation to equal status with fact-checked information. Really quickly, I also want to... Um, it wouldn't be Obscuristad if we didn't address the role of empire in this uh, in this conflict, because yay. we know that for our listeners, right? Yay, yay! Um, but because we know that for our listeners, you know, the instinct is, and for us as well, this isn't an incorrect instinct. The instinct is to think of the imperial actor in the region as Russia, which, broadly speaking, is almost always true. Um, you know, we will we will have a lot of fun talking about the many ways Russia has fucked up the region. In fact, we have so many, we've had to like purposefully kind of be like, you know what, we're talking about Russia too much. We need to focus on other places. We just want to shit on Russia. It's fine. We really do. We, we're going to love doing that in the future. But today, today, ladies and gentlemen, we not only have one empire, but two. Uh, three if you include the United States, but we're going we're gonna to stick with the guys who are actually in the region. The Caucasus are an intersection of empires, and Armenia specifically lies at the intersection of empires. In this instance, we've got, you know, Russian imperial aims and we have Turkish imperial aims. And at this point, you might think what the like you've Turkey has been the specter over this conflict over the course of this conversation. And you might think, like, what the fuck does Turkey have to do with it? And to summarize it succinctly, Turkey and Azerbaijan are separate states, uh, but their governments work in tandem. They frequently call themselves, Kari, that was about to jump in and say, because we say this so much. They frequently call themselves one nation, two states. Um, and you can see that Aliyev and Erdogan um, sort of form their policy jointly. There's a lot of historical reasons for this. There's a lot of cultural um, and political reasons for this. But suffice it to say that Turkey has imperial aims. And the the government that is currently in Azerbaijan and has been in control of Azerbaijan for the last 30 years. And then uh, the Aliyev family actually also still controlled Azerbaijan for many years before that. So really the la- like the, la- the the governments in living memory in Azerbaijan um, were willing participants in that project of Turkish imperialism, which you might hear referred to as pan-Turkism or Turanism. Turkey basically wants to be able to control or inf- have influence over um, the entire Turkic world. Stands all the way to China, basically all the way to China, and uh, there is a tiny little sovereign state that gets in the way of that, and that little tiny sovereign state happens to be the Republic of Armenia and uh, the Republic of Artsakh, where Armenians also live, and they pose a problem to that project. Because it's a fascist ideology, and um, you would think, you know, with that kind of power, with that kind of numbers of people, what's a little republic, a tiny republic of three million um, you know, how can it actually pose an obstacle? And it's actually just by its mere existence, right? There's this idea that when you yeah. target a group for genocide and you don't carry it out until the end, they remain a target forever. And it almost like yes. makes um, the aggressor even more angry. 
Well, and in, in Turkey, um, the policy of erasing the pesky uh, indigenous populations of what is now uh, Eastern Turkey is pretty aggressive. And you see this, you know, with the suppression of Kurdish identity and the destruction of, you know, um, Kurds as well. And so Kurds and Armenians in particular, because they sort of like formed the kind of largest and most, um, I guess, unified groups, but also, you know, Yazidis, uh, Assyrians, Greeks, all of these groups that lived in this region and were forcibly removed or um, ethnically cleansed out um, pose a threat to this idea of, you know, of the Turkish Empire. And you can see this, the idea of this ascendant kind of pan-Turkism also recently with um, more aggressive rhetoric in action in Turkey against Greece. And they've been yes. kind of claiming the islands of the Aegean, is it the Aegean, for themselves. So it's, it's yeah. the kind of revanchist, irredentist, genocidal rhetoric that, that Turks, the Turkish government, is, uh, especially in the last couple of years, has been using against Armenians is, is increasingly being used against Greeks as well. And um, I've seen a lot of analysts who are, you know, quite respected and, and trustworthy more recently in articles kind of write that um, a, a new conflict between Greece and Turkey is not um, it's not just kind of you know an idea out there it's actually quite likely yeah um, so TLDR okay. Turkey's got <laughs> we should put this part in the beginning Turkey's got genocide uh, the Turkish state has genocide and empire on the mind um, and Armenians Kurds and other now ethnic minorities stand in the way of that. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, the infl- like when we talk about empire in the region, that really is um, a major player. And then, of course, you also have Russia and its, you know, desire to maintain the post-Soviet um, world in sort of a unified bloc. Uh, but that's probably a story for another day. Yeah, and, and, you know, kind of seeing Russian power kind of collapse with, the, yeah. with this invasion of Ukraine. So if we haven't confused you already this is prop guys audience please like this is probably going to be the most confusing episode we ever do we plan for months and this is the fucking first impression we get we're like we don't want to make this an Armenian podcast we don't want to talk about it being Armenian uh and here we are welcome guys yeah on that note that's you know a very um cursory and disorganized summary of the events going on in um the Republic of Artsakh and Armenia today. But we will be back next week uh, with another episode, probably about gay rights in Russia. So stay tuned. Um, Shockingly a little bit easier than this, but still not great. (laughs) Um, So thank you for listening to Obscuristan. We hope you enjoyed the trip and uh, stay tuned for more. Bye. Recording from fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, hold on. Hades recording.